0: Hi there, and welcome to the People's Chosen God pod. I'm your host, Chad Hayes, and I want to welcome you to this first real episode of this podcast. Um, This podcast is meant to be a companion to a book that I'm releasing serially on Substack. It's called People's Chosen God, uh, just like the podcast. And so far, I've released the first five chapters, and I'm releasing a new one each week. This project started as a book that I was writing that was going to be about purity culture, and as I was researching for that book, I realized how intertwined sexual purity is with a lot of other problematic aspects of evangelical theology. And so I expanded the book to be um, about those other aspects as well. And so there's there's racism, there's homophobia, there's patriarchy, there's um, all the good stuff. And... Uh, Basically, just pointing out that evangelical, well, white evangelicalism specifically uses the Bible to uh, support a theology that keeps white, straight, uh, cisgender Christian men in power, and um, and so that's the idea of the book. This podcast is a companion to that. Uh, I'll be interviewing people about these same topics, uh, people who either have significant lived experience in these areas or people who are academic experts in the field. Um, And so, uh, so this first one is about biblical family values, and that's the idea that the only acceptable form of marriage is a strictly monogamous union between one cisgender man and one cisgender woman, and there's the implicit expectation for them to have children. Uh, The way that they enforce this is by using literal interpretations of very carefully selected Bible verses to support it. But if you just read the Bible and take it at face value, things aren't quite as clear as they would want you to believe. In the Old Testament, men often owned multiple wives, and they would frequently have sex with other women as well. Many of the men that I learned about Growing up in Sunday school, and I was taught where leaders in the faith, Uh, they had multiple wives, and God explicitly said that was okay, so long as they could still provide for the ones that they had already. Uh, King David was said to be a man after God's own heart, and it was very important that he be placed in the genealogy of Jesus, and he had quite the harem. I'll be coming back to some of David's problematic sexual activities at a later date. Uh, David's son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, He famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he also wrote Proverbs 5, uh, which in my NIV Bible is called Warning Against Adultery, which is frequently employed by evangelicals to promote strict monogamy. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses from it now um, as Solomon compares women to running water and also deer. Uh, Starting in verse 15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? An honest reading of this passage makes it very clear that the author is talking specifically about adultery, defined as uh, having sex with another man's wife, which was viewed as a property crime, because uh, you would be defiling his property. Uh, It says nothing about the number of wives with whose breasts one might hope to find satisfaction. And somehow, until writing this book, the irony of using a poem that was purportedly written by a man with a 1,000-woman harem to promote strict monogamy missed me somehow. Uh, in the New Testament, things are a bit different, but definitely not in the one-man, one-woman way that I was taught. Jesus and Paul are both single and celibate, as far as we can tell from the text. They both taught that the ideal was not a procreative marriage, but a celibate single life dedicated to the Lord's work. Um, they do allow for marriage, um, but it's, it's kind of just to be a sanctioned sexual outlet. Um, but both of them say that ideally you would just you know live your life and, and serve the Lord. Um, and Jesus didn't seem to care about families at all, if you actually listen to him. And yet, evangelicals today want to force their biblical family values not only on themselves, but on our society as a whole. My guest today is Dr. Audrey Claire Farley. Audrey is a historian of 20th century American fiction and culture. She earned a PhD in English literature and now teaches U.S. history at Mount St. Mary's University. She's the author of The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt and her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and other outlets. I first discovered Audrey from a piece that she wrote in 2021 for Religion and Politics called The Eugenics Roots of Evangelical Family Values, which helped me make a lot of the connections that I write about in this book. And that's what we're talking about today. I enjoyed talking with her, and I'm very happy to share our conversation with you. Hi, Audrey. Thanks so much for joining me. really glad to get a chance to talk with you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Before we get into the topic, can you give us a rundown of your religious background, if you have one, where you started, where you are now? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I grew up, uh, spent the first 10 years of my life in a Catholic charismatic community, uh, which was a covenant community where I attended school and lived and worshiped with um, other Catholics. And um, I often compare it to People of Praise, which was the community people are more familiar with. Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett came out of that community. And uh, so I I grew up Catholic, um, was very much immersed in the far right version of Catholicism. And it really wasn't until I went to college that I began to question that upbringing and began to scratch away at it um, and come to see that a lot of what had been passed off to me as timeless Christianity was really just um, the right-wing politics of the 80s and 90s. Uh, So I became an agnostic, and I still consider myself an agnostic, but I like to call myself a seeker as well. I very much still continue to read a lot of theology, um, and read widely about other religions and, um, you know, follow progressive Christianity and different groups. Uh, so that's where I am now.
0: Cool. Um, I also left the religion that I grew up in and find myself immersed in it still uh, Mm -hmm. reading books that were the ones that I was influenced by, but didn't know it because it was my mom that was reading it or um, reading the ones that, that I read growing up and influenced me that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you heard of focus on the family?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Was that a, was that a thing when you were growing up or, or something that you found later?
1: Yeah. So interestingly, even though Catholics disparage Protestants, and I'm sure it's the reverse, when they share politics, they're willing to uh, entertain the other person's literature and media. And so focus on the family, veggie tales, those kinds of Protestant uh, media staples were very much a part of my milieu. Um, And so yes, unfortunately, I'm familiar with focus on the family.
0: Um, so I grew up Southern Baptist. I went to, uh, uh, elementary, middle and high school that was associated with Bob Jones University. So you've got the, the fundamentalist aspect of it there. Um, but I listened to Adventures in Odyssey and read Clubhouse Magazine and my mom read all of James Dobson's books and Mm -hmm. still does. She gets his magazine. She listens to his radio show. Um, and so when I somehow stumbled on an article that was written by somebody claiming that uh, James Dobson had ties to eugenics, mm-hmm. it caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how I found it, but that was that was where I found you. Um, can you tell us about that connection?
1: Yeah, so I actually stumbled across Dobson's eugenic roots myself when I was Uh, researching for a book I wrote about eugenics. And uh, it was about heiress Ann Cooper Hewitt, who was a woman who lived in the early part of the 20th century and was sterilized without her knowledge. And because she was an heiress, there was this really explosive media storm and it made headlines and really forced a public debate of eugenics. And there was a figure that was involved in her case. His name was Paul Popenow. And he was a huge proponent of forced sterilization. So um, trying to prevent the unfit, uh, which included disabled people, people of color, immigrants, anyone um, that was deemed uh, defective, um, to prevent those people from reproducing. And Paul Pobono testified in Anne's case And he was so influential in passing eugenic statutes in California and other states around the country that he gained the notice of leaders of the Third Reich. And the Third Reich, many people don't know, um, formulated the Nuremberg Laws based on eugenics in America. So those laws forbade marriage between Jews and non-Jews and they selected certain children for sterilization. This was in the 1930s. And they thanked Popono for his work. Um, And and so he helped to launch not just eugenics in the U.S., but uh, to set the Holocaust in motion. But what happened in the U.S. after the Holocaust is uh, it really gave People in America a distaste for what was happening. They began to rightly ask if sterilizing entire classes of people, disabled people, was any better than the horrors that were taking place in Germany. And so eugenics in America had to find new forms. And what Popinot did is he basically shape shifted from uh, this proponent of what was called. Um, negative eugenics or preventing unfit women from reproducing to positive eugenics, which is getting the right people to reproduce. So white, middle-class, able-bodied women. And he opens this foundation in California called the American Institute for Family Relations. The express goal of this institute was getting uh, white women to reproduce, promoting marriage among white families. And James Dobson cut his teeth at this organization. So after he attended school, he became a psychologist. He, one of his first uh, jobs out of the gate was working for Paul Popeno, who was, you know, trying to promote the white family for the sake of eugenics.
0: Yeah. Um, and so I read that in your article and... I was surprised, um, and I so I accepted it, and I said, oh, you know, Dobson worked with this guy, um, kind of a shitty guy. I've had some shitty coworkers too, and I didn't really get, like, the depth of the connection, but as I've been uh, reading, researching for this book, I have come across some other things, like uh, Dare to Discipline was James Dobson's first book. And Popinot wrote the foreword to it. And Mm -hmm. Dobson quotes him at length for several pages. And uh, The Act of Marriage by Tim and Beverly LaHaye, they quote him at length there too. And these biblical family values that they're preaching and uh, trying to impose on society as a whole, not just their followers, uh, came from this guy, this eugenicist, Mm -hmm. atheist guy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and I'm glad that you mentioned that he's an atheist because he was. And yet, most of his clients at the Institute, the people that he would train to then go off and do the kind of marriage counseling that he was doing were clergymen, Baptist and Mormon clergymen, youth group leaders, so religious figures. And that's so interesting to me um, because the way Dobson sells family values is that it's biblical. It's scriptural, Mm -hmm. and yet it's coming from an avowed atheist. So, you know, the argument that I made in that article is that he's essentially baptizing eugenics for the church-going masses. Uh, And one way that he's able to do this is by uh, framing these eugenics um, ideas in much more polite language. So, for instance, Popeno initially would... um, expressly say that, you know, uh, black and white people should not breed that dilutes the purity of the white race. The more the 20th century goes on, the more public attitudes begin to change. He can't get away with saying something so apparently Mm -hmm. racist. And so now you
0: can, but (laughs) there there was a brief time there.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he, directly counseled people like Dobson and other employees of his institute to frame it as a compatibility issue. So it's not about the integrity of the white race. It's about compatibility. And we know that people who come from different cultural backgrounds just have a harder time in marriage. That's just the way it is. And that's the kind of language that Dobson would pass off.
0: I've noticed that reading some of the um, newer focus on the family things, like what's on their website now compared to even Dobson's earlier stuff is it's, it's coded now barely. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, different cultural backgrounds. I mean, I'm married to someone from Canada. We have slightly different cultural backgrounds, but our skin's the same color. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, There are
0: lots of people in Europe and uh, that have similar skin color to me, but um, vastly different cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, uh, it enables them to do the thing that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the marriage counseling for Pope and One of the things that I was kind of shocked to learn is that he was kind of the guy that brought it to the U.S. Um, it wasn't just that he did marriage counseling. He kind of didn't invent it. He kind of stole it from Nazi Germany, but, um, he brought it to the U.S. and made it widely available for this purpose.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually did not know that he that he brought it from Germany. I read that in your piece, so you must have done more research than I about where he got it.
0: Yeah, I don't remember where it was. I I found a couple new things that I hadn't seen in what you wrote. Um, one was that that he he started. Uh, I forget the name of the institution that he founded for marriage counseling, but it was in the nineteen twenties, mm-hmm. and he modeled it after nineteen uh, twenties Germany. Uh, programs that were intended to purify the race.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, uh, the other thing was that he had written a paper, uh, praising Hitler's eugenics policies. Mm -hmm. And in that was lamenting the fact that Hitler himself was a bachelor and wasn't contributing to the betterment of the white race.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a guy.
0: Yeah. So, so biblical family values, we've got enforced heterosexuality and, and gender conformity, um, the prohibition of premarital sex. So we encourage young people to marry early. I was going to say kids and it's really not that far off, Mm -hmm. um, putting marriage on a pedestal and demonizing divorce so that we keep them in these marriages, even if they're unhappy or abusive and Mm -hmm. then, uh, encouraging them to have children. And then we've got the racial aspect of, uh, you know, our American history. Um, I guess there's a wider history too, but specifically here, of painting white women as the paragon of purity and black men as, uh, you know, sexual deviants that were a threat to those white women. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that, would you call that eugenics? It sounds like eugenics.
1: I would say it's definitely what aspect of it? The, the last part of the whole thing?
0: Um, I, I think I've come full circle, well, not full circle, half circle, um, Mm -hmm. in this from embracing purity culture when I was younger to Mm -hmm. rejecting it just because I, I no longer held the beliefs that it was based on. And so, you know, I thought it was bullshit, but I didn't Mm -hmm. realize quite how harmful it is to now. I, I'm, kind of on board with just saying purity cultures, eugenics. Um, yes. a lot of it's intended to make white Christian young people get married early, have children early, stay in those marriages
1: mm-hmm.
0: and procreate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I went to a, a very, uh, fundamentalist Christian school and it was the year 2000 when they overturned their ban on interracial dating. Mm. Um, so it's not, this it wasn't many decades ago um, that this was still um, still being practiced and enforced.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that really fascinates me about purity culture, um, and this is something that my friend and colleague Sarah Mosliner is also exploring. She's also working on a book about purity culture. She runs the After Purity Collective, which collects a lot of stories of people coming out of evangelical culture is that purity can be both literally about the purity of the bloodline. And we see this with things like the um, discouraging of interracial marriage, with the emphasis on having a lot of babies. Um, And it's not just people like Dobson, Kevin DeYoung over at the Gospel Coalition wrote an article as recently as two years ago about how Christians can win the culture wars with their fecundity. Um so purity culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it can be very literally about um the bloodline, but it also does a lot of representational work. So when you put women, white women specifically, on a pedestal, it often allows you to then lynch people who are a threat to those women, right? And this comes straight out of the 1800s. You know, in the South, uh, Southern Baptists put their white women on a pedestal in order to be able to justify barbarity and violence against Black men. They used that same dynamic to say that we could never be integrated. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to have uh, Jim Crow society because they they presented such a threat to white womanhood right? Uh, So purity does a lot of things. And and that's just, it's just so insidious to me in the way that it works on different fronts. Mm -hmm.
0: And that's another thing that I've realized as I've been working on this project, I I started it just about purity culture. And then I realized all of the other intertwined ways that uh, racism and patriarchy and anti-LGBTQ sentiment and all these other things are tied up with this idea of purity. It's not just about, you know, keeping Tyler and Nicole from having sex. It's about, uh, it's about preserving this racial and doctrinal, um, and cultural purity on a macro level too. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, when I was growing up in church, going to Sunday school and, uh, and in my Christian school, when we were hearing these Bible stories, um, we would read about these old men in the, in the old Testament and they were our heroes. And we looked up to them. We literally called them patriarchs and they had multiple wives. And I had this question when I was, I don't know, six or seven, like, you know, I'm hearing these Bible stories about these people that have multiple wives, but why can't we do that now? Why is that not a thing? Mm -hmm. And as I was going through, uh, writing this last chapter, um, just flipping through Genesis and Exodus and almost everybody has multiple wives and they're also sleeping with slash raping their concubines and slaves (laughs) and, um, never got a good answer about that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But so then I, I went to the new Testament and I was like, Oh, this must be where the biblical family values are. And then there's, you know, there's Jesus, who's a pretty prominent figure in the New Testament. And he doesn't really care much about family. He says, um, somebody tells him his mother and brothers are there looking for him. And he said, who are my mother and brothers? You are my mother and brothers. You're my family now. And people want to follow him, but they want to go say goodbye to their family. And he's like, nope, you're following me now. Mm -hmm. Like family doesn't matter anymore. And then both he and Paul are single and celibate, as far as you can tell from the text, um, and say that that's the ideal way to go. You know, mm-hmm. stay single, um, do the Lord's work, have your time and energy to focus on that. Uh, but you know, allow marriage as a concession so that you have a sanctioned sexual outlet. Uh, but still, ideally, yeah, you would not get married. Um, and it's it's wild to me that most of the family structures in the Bible aren't the nuclear family of 1960s America. Right. Um, But, but yet that's what we hear preached from behind the pulpit is one man, one woman. That's how God intended
1: it. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that fundamentalism does well is by convincing people that, certain behaviors and traditions really are timeless. And part of the way that they do that, and I experienced you know, the Catholic variant of it, is by teaching people, everyone else has capitulated to the world, but we are set off from culture, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no human fingerprints on our beliefs or institutions they just magically come right down from God, you know, and evangelicals have the same idea of the Bible. Catholics are less attached to the Bible because they have the church. But as I understand it, you know, evangelicals believe that the Bible is totally inerrant, that it literally is magic in that it came floating down from the heavens. um, And it wasn't produced by fallible human beings. Um, and and yet, as you say, you know, as soon as people really begin to read the Bible and see these things, then it it becomes more visible. It comes into focus. The way that your traditions are very much shaped by your times. Um, you know, the family, the nuclear family, is not that old of an institution, and yet we're mm-hmm. taught that um, that it's timeless. And this that this is precisely how you express your christian faith and i think like that's that's another point that i wanted to make about dobson it's not just um it's the 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 undue burden that he places on marriage and reproduction and sexual ethics right sexual ethics has always been a part of christianity but what happens with dobson and the positive eugenics crowd is that it really becomes the way that you express your faith by being pure, getting married, and having a shit ton of kids. (laughs) And and that that I think is really what sets off purity culture and the whole focus on the family mess uh from times past.
0: Yeah, that the inerrancy and literalism thing. Um I grew up with that. You know, this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, like preached every Sunday and
1: don't uh, read it too closely or ask any questions.
0: No, right. These are, these are the specific verses that you should, that you should focus (laughs) on.
1: Um,
0: But I always wondered like how though, like, Mm -hmm. because people wrote it, there were a bunch of almost certainly all men Mm -hmm. that had a a quill or whatever they used to write and they put letters on a, on a page. And, Mm -hmm did God like guide their hand? Was he, was he, was it like a Ouija board or something? And, uh, and he's, uh, physically manipulating them or did he give them the words and they wrote them down? Or was it, was it maybe not verbatim, but he told them, you know, the, the concept that they were to deliver. And then that got copied and translated and we have different versions now. And, you know, they say pretty much the same thing. But how can it be, you know, the actual words of God if we have different versions of them now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: so I had these questions growing up and nobody could answer them. And so I, I forgot about them for a while. And then when I came back, I was like, oh, that's, it's just not true.
1: Yeah. There was a, a Theo bro on Twitter a while <laughs> back that wrote something like, there's not so much a comma out of place in the Bible. And of course, people quickly laid into him because there are no commas in the original text. (laughs) It wasn't a convention that was around yet. Yeah. Um, But that is the belief. And, you know, as somebody who left, you know, I just I, I wonder why it would be so hard to say, look, these are different pieces of writing that were written under different political circumstances by different people to different people for different rhetorical purposes. And, you know, any any text that combined this many disparate writings from different times and places is going to have contradictions. It's going to not be this totally integrous thing, um, but you can't have that under fundamentalism you know Mm -hmm. it needs to be uh this this totally whole perfect thing uh but as you said people only privileging certain certain verses and not others
0: yeah it's been it's been interesting because i uh the way this book is set up is that um each chapter kind of addresses a different topic so like there's a chapter about racism there needs to be a lot more chapters about racism but um I'm covering so many topics that I have to limit some of it. Um, but one of the chapters that I wrote is it's called creating complementarianism. The idea that there's these two, two genders that always correspond with your gentles and they have these defined roles and you God values men and women the same, but for different purposes and you have to stay with that purpose or he doesn't value you. And Uh, One of the books that I read when writing that is Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which you referenced in your article. Mm -hmm. And there was a chapter in there where she was talking about the making of the ESV version of the Bible, which was um, done intentionally as there was a new NIV version that was coming out that included gender neutral language. And so these conservative Christian guys got together and they're like, Nope, we can't have that. We've got to make a new version. And they literally changed some of the words. These, these same people that are like, Nope, this is, it was written by the hand of God. This is literally true. It's an mm-hmm.
1: They
0: changed it on purpose. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I, I really applaud her for doing that work and, and, giving people examples of, you know, figures in the Bible, disciples that scholars agreed were women that had their names changed over time because we can't have women disciples. They're supposed to be Mm -hmm. staying home and having the babies. Uh, Yeah, but it is, it's, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And also, if you think about how much the four gospels differ from each other, Mm -hmm. um, the way that more emphasis on the role of the Jews is placed over the course of the gospels, you know, that the Jews are sort of getting more and more implicated in the crucifixion mm-hmm. than they had. Um, I mean, it's pretty unbelievable.
0: <laughs> um, the inerrancy and literalism thing. I That's one of the themes that I've kept coming back to as I'm examining all of these things. And I think that the reason it exists is because it has to exist. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: what they've done is take their pre-existing beliefs, their white supremacy, their patriarchy, and this is the thing that must be upheld at any cost. And they create this scriptural framework to sanctify that. Mm -hmm. And to do so, you can't, you can't just look at the Bible as a whole. You can't interpret it as a product of its time and things are different now. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to point to one verse, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the correct verses, not one of the others, and say, nope, this is literal. Women are to be silent. Mm
1: -hmm. It says
0: right here. And I think that that is the key that allows them to weaponize the Bible to oppress all of these other groups. But it also, it also sets up a system that's really brittle. Um, so I, I grew up deeply evangelical and drifted a bit. Um, you know, I was in medicine, and that tends to make you a bit more progressive when you see people who are – I didn't know people were struggling. I was fine. I assumed everybody else was fine too. I had no reason to think that they weren't. Um, but just being exposed to, to other people from different backgrounds – um, tends to make people more progressive. And so I had had faded away from my conservatism a bit. But what really uh, caused me to leave the faith that I had, I still believed it. I just I was practicing it differently. But I was at a really low point in my life, and I turned to God, and I, I was looking to strengthen my faith. And so I started reading the Bible again. And I got to Genesis one, which is pretty early on. And I was like, Nope, I don't believe that. Like I've, I've seen evidence for evolution at this point. I don't think the dinosaurs and people coexisted until the flood. And so this must be some kind of metaphor. And then I went on and we had the flood and there were, you know, two, two or seven of every single kind of animal on this boat. And, and then somehow they made it back to the continents that they are on today. And, uh, the water had to go somewhere. And I was like, yeah, that definitely didn't happen.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then just more and more pieces kept falling away. And then I realized, well, if I can't trust that part of the inspired inerrant word of God, why would I trust the rest of it? How did this get put together? Who wrote it? Who selected which books are included? I was told that this was the foundation for everything. And when the foundation crumbled, there Mm -hmm. was nothing left. And I think if I had grown up in a, like more of a progressive Christian church, where the emphasis on inerrancy and literalism isn't there, and there's more of a focus on, you know, the teachings of Jesus or whatever, um, it might not have gone away. It might've, it might've bent instead of breaking. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, they have to have it because it's the key to maintaining their biblical family values. Um, Mm -hmm. not just for them, but for, for all of us.
1: Yeah. That's really fascinating that you say that because I've, I've wondered something similar about myself. Um, just, well, I mean, you said it best, like, If it hadn't been so absolute, uh, in my case, if my parents hadn't tried to pass off, you know, Jerry Falwell's program as Christianity, Mm -hmm. would I still be a Christian? Um, Because the idea that a lot of progressive Christians have their approach to the Bible, that it's something that um, has a lot of different conflicting messages, and you can find love and liberation in that book if you're looking for it. If you're mm-hmm. looking for author- authoritarianism, you can also find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a much more honest approach, a way of interpreting it, um, that I too kind of wonder if I had grown up in that, would I be an agnostic? I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, but you're, I agree with you that um, that the the mechanism which is there for control can also be the thing that pushes people out. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, And another thing, as I, as I cover each of these topics, I keep coming back to, you know, you can, you can find pretty much whatever you want in the Bible. And if you say we're going to literally interpret at least the parts that you pick out, nobody actually thinks the Bible is literal. There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of things in the Bible that, that no one, not even the most conservative Christian out there believes are literal. Um, But if you, if you select the ones that you want to be literally interpreted, you can weaponize it against people. You can use the Bible to justify owning slaves. Mm -hmm. You can use the Bible to back up your position as an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. And it, it really seems like it's, it's that, uh, selective literalism. That's the key to using a book that some people find to be, um, a book of liberation Mm
1: -hmm. to oppress people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, Can you tell me more about your book and what that, what that situation was like and, um, and what happened with her?
1: Oh yeah. So, um, Ann Cooper Hewitt, you know, as I mentioned, she was an heiress. Her mother had her sterilized to deprive her of the money from her father's estate he was a millionaire oh. and an inventor and because she was famous the case really people spilled a lot of ink over that case <laughs> it gained a lot more press than the case of carrie buck which was the one that went all the way to the supreme court and codified for sterilization as legal And uh, at the end of the day, in large part because of the uh, advocacy of Paul Popenow, it was decided that her mother had not stepped any, uh, had not violated the law and was deemed defective um, because she was said to be oversexed. That was her mother's argument and uh, that she was really not fit for motherhood. And, uh, so it had a really, really tragic ending. And then Popeno went ahead and remade himself. Hmm.
0: How did you, how did you arrive at that topic?
1: Um, I had read a book of poems by Molly McCully Brown, which was that at the Virginia State Colony of Epileptics in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I was just so fascinated by her poems, which were really haunting And I realized I didn't know anything about eugenics. And so I just kind of went down this research rabbit hole and I stumbled across Ann's case. And I was really shocked that a book hadn't already been written about it or that it wasn't made into a movie. And uh, so I had to write about it. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, when I first came across the Dobson bit, I was shocked, but I assumed that it was already well known. And then I would read different books about evangelicalism, including Kristen Cobez Dumais, Jesus and John Wayne. And she talked about Dobson and she didn't mention it. And I thought, well, is it possible people really don't know this about him? And that's when I wrote that article for religion and politics, which had way more readings than my book sold copies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that that was just so, like 2020, yeah. 2021, somewhere in there? Yeah. It's pretty recent. Um, yeah. And I, uh, another one of the things that you had pointed out was that whoever wrote James Thompson's biography also neglected to mention this eugenics connection.
1: Yes. Yeah. Hmm. So there's been some efforts to cover his tracks for sure. Um, Although I did think it was interesting, and I cited this in the article, that as recently as, uh, what was it, 2017 or 2018, Dobson just went on this rant about illegals coming into the country. And he basically went down to the border at Trump's invitation and then spewed off about how um, criminals were going to destroy and take down our nation if not controlled. So that was really interesting to me because I have the impression that he's tried to cover his tracks, that he's made his racism more palatable and -hmm. and polite, but there he just seemed to be as I imagined he was when he was chatting with Mm (laughs) Popinow.
0: Trump tended to to give people license to just say the things.
1: Yep. You're right about that.
0: Um, another, another, uh, marriage between conservative evangelicals and, uh, people who, who don't necessarily fit their, uh, moral framework mm-hmm. and yeah. yet they ally with them to, uh, to promote.
1: Yeah. Racism. Well, yeah. And, and just thinking about like the alliance between evangelicals and Catholics, that's gotten a lot of mm-hmm. news this past week because of the overturning of Roe. Um, I know my Catholic family totally disparaged Protestants. I've heard mm-hmm. Protestants disparage Catholics, but they were willing to put their differences aside um, when it came to this issue, um, which, by the way, is was totally born of eugenics. Um, yeah. Yeah, the the pro-life movement, not only did it come after figures had coalesced around segregation, which Randall Ballmer wrote in his wonderful piece, Exposing the Origins of the Religious Right, but um, it has been totally fueled by fears of racial suicide and this idea that the native birth rates are not keeping up with the rates of immigration So there were books like The Birth, Dearth* by Ben Wattenberg, which was um, written either the 80s or 90s, uh, in which he basically said, because of abortion, there's soon going to be a dark-skinned takeover. And this book was read by both Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. People like Dan Quayle, who was the vice president, uh, Pat Robertson, Pat Buchanan, all read this book and uh, even used that language, birth dearth, in their campaigning. So they were very explicitly on the pro-life train because of their panic about racial suicide.
0: Yeah, and I think in the the 70s, it started a little bit before that, I think, but when the Moral Majority was founded in 1978 or nine, um, that actually happened because of racism Yep. Um, they, uh, it was the university that was associated with the Christian school that I went to, uh, Bob Jones university had, uh, two Supreme court cases about their racist admissions policy. And then, uh, the fact that they wouldn't allow interracial dating or marriage, um, and they wanted to keep their tax exempt status. And so, um, uh, Jerry Falwell and Paul Wyrick founded the moral majority, uh, Falwell, is the you know founder of Liberty University and a prominent evangelical, Wyrick was a Catholic that had left the church because uh, Vatican II made it too liberal for him. And so they joined forces uh, to to fight for their right to keep their tax exempt, exempt status and still remain racist. Yeah. And the um, the fundamentalists that were at Bob Jones university and had these Supreme court cases refused to join forces with them because they're like, Nope, like we could do this for political power and we'll fight alongside you, but we're not going to join you because our way is the only right way.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And it was interesting to me that like, this is the cause that you're fighting for. And they're like, no, we're not going to, not going to do that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also believed that that Catholics were going to hell and, um, I'd heard more than once that the Pope was the Antichrist. So, Mm -hmm. so we shared that disdain for each other.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, looking back, it's just so laughable because the narrative that I was sold was that Protestants had departed from the one true church and become like the world, Mm -hmm. right? The world. Yeah. Even just that
0: phrasing, right? Right. They're separate from the world.
1: (laughs) Right. As if anybody is separate from the world. Uh, so, you know, we are, we have the truth with a capital T, the Protestants have capitulated to culture, but yet like the textbooks we used at my school were from one of those, you know, mills, it's not Bill Gothard or the Abeka, but one of them, uh, the speakers that we had were evangelical. Um, I mean, we were just drawing so heavily from evangelical culture, And I can see now that it was because uh, they were more than willing to put aside uh, doctrine differences if it meant culture wars. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it did. Yeah.
0: I, I grew up on the, on the Protestant side of it, thinking that Catholics weren't real Christians. And I remember I went to the United States Naval Academy for my undergrad and I got there. And one of my friends that I inherited, because that's what happens when you go somewhere like that was Catholic and, he was the nicest guy and he, he would, he would go out of his way to help people and just, just really, really good person. And I was like, wow. And he's Catholic.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. And then you go to college and you meet atheists and you're like, they're just like me. They eat pizza. They do all these same things. You know, would you know it? <laughs> yeah.
0: Didn't murder any puppies today.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, Audrey, it's been a pleasure having you here. Um, Can you tell people where they can find you if they want to link up with you and your work?
1: Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Audrey C. Farley. And I'm working on a book now, which I think will interest listeners. Uh, It's about four sisters who were diagnosed with schizophrenia and studied by NIH, uh, they were believed to prove the genetics of mental illness, but it turned out that they had grown up in what I call an evangelical house of horrors and um, a sort of precursor to purity culture. Uh, And I tell that story in order to, um, in order to understand some of the roots of purity culture, which, you know, we've talked about.
0: That sounds interesting. When do you have a timeline in mind for I'm that?
1: Hoping, yeah, I'm hoping it'll come out late 2023. Cool.
0: That sounds great. Um, well, thanks again so much for joining me. It was a pleasure having you on and I'll talk to you later.
1: Thank you so much, Chad.
0: Thanks again, Audrey, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Chapter 6 of People's Chosen God will be out on Monday. It's called Creating Complementarianism. And that's the belief that God established only two genders, which always correspond to one's genitals, and that women are to be subservient to men. They teach that God values men and women equally. He just values women most when they're following his plan and being quiet and submissive. Just like they do with biblical family values, they have to ignore a lot of scripture to get there and also be really careful which verses they choose to literally interpret in order to weaponize the Bible to keep people in their place. You can find that when it comes out, as well as the first five chapters that I've already released at schadhayes.substack.com, and I would love it if you would subscribe. I'm also releasing audio versions of each chapter that will appear on this feed. I'll be back here next week. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, but you'll have better luck on Twitter. I am at schadhays, and the podcast is at Chosen Pod. If you find my work valuable, I would truly appreciate your support. You can support me monthly on Substack or Patreon, or make a one-time donation using the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Go with God. Or without Him. Whatever works for you. People's Chosen God is produced by me, Chad Hayes. The music used throughout the show is my own.